You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 26th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, how Israel's response to Hamas actions could deepen fault lines across the region. We'll examine how neighbours are reacting to the conflict on their doorstep. Also coming up, is Russia making the most of the Middle East conflict? We'll get Moscow's perspective. And Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. After weeks of chaos, the U.S. House of Representatives elects a new speaker. Monocle's Chris Chermack will tell us more. We'll have a flick through the papers too with Simon Brook, who joins me now. Good morning, Simon. Good what morning, do you have Emma. for us? Well, the Financial Times looks at how Qatar, which hosts Hamas, is drawing both praise and scrutiny as the West seeks to end the conflict in the Middle East. The New York Times columnist David French asked, with a third Trump lawyer now pleading guilty in Georgia, what does this mean for the former president's own prospects. Thank you, Simon. And we'll get the lowdown on the latest television news too. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. At least 16 people have been killed in a shooting in the US city of Lewiston in Maine. Police say the suspected gunman, an Army Reserve firearms instructor with mental health issues, is still at large. Russia says it successfully tested its ability to deliver a massive nuclear strike by land, sea and air. And Armenia's Prime Minister has said he sees no advantage in continuing to host Russian military bases on its territory after Azerbaijan returned took the contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, how will the worsening crisis in Gaza play out? Not just for those civilians caught up in the catastrophe, but also for the neighbours. There are concerns that deep divisions between Israel and Palestine could not only be set for years, but also for those countries bordering in the region. I'm joined now by Ruth Michelson, who's a journalist based in Istanbul. She's just got back from a reporting trip to Jerusalem. A very good morning to you, Ruth. Good morning. Um, If we may, before we move to this, could we move to some breaking news? We have um, reports coming from various outlets that Israeli forces, including tanks, have rolled into northern Gaza overnight in the biggest incursion of the war against Hamas so far. Um, There's no sense yet. Is there a full scale invasion or is this the beginning of something? Do we know? Uh, it is well. They've dis- the Israeli Defense Forces describe this as a targeted raid. So while it is um, the largest of its kind that we've seen so far, there isn't an indication that um, any of the troops that went in um, stayed. Instead, the IDF said that they um, they're preparing part of the border area for what they called the next stages of the war, probably in reference to um, a full ground offensive, um, and that they then left the area afterwards. Ruth, thank you very much indeed for that. Let's let's return to the the subject that we we were intending to do until the breaking news happened, which is the the issues of of Israel and Gaza's neighbours. I mean, which, which countries are we talking about here? 
Well, primarily, um, with certainly talking about Egypt, um, which has been a party to the blockade, the 16-year blockade of the Gaza Strip, um, that has been enforced not just by Israel but um, but on Gaza's southern end, the border with Egypt. We've certainly seen um, lots of fearful statements um, or worried statements from the Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, um, who is very concerned about uh, the idea of Palestinian forced displacement into the Sinai, which is an idea that we've seen um, Israeli officials bring up many times um, in recent years. Um, we're also in some ways talking about Turkey, where I'm sitting now, as there have been some, um, although Turkey doesn't share a border, um, Turkey is heavily involved in terms of uh, occasionally welcoming uh, members of Hamas. Some of members of the political bureau were, Hama were from Hamas were in Turkey when uh, October 7th happened. Um, and Turkey has strived to have diplomatic relations or change its diplomatic relations with Israel even so um, in recent years. And we're definitely talking also um, about Jordan, um, which hosts uh, large numbers of uh, Palestinian dual nationals, Palestinian citizens, um, and where, you know, King Abdullah uh, of Jordan is considered a key Western ally um, and has been extremely outspoken um, about what, what's been happening. He recently accused Israel of what he called um, collective punishment of a besieged and helpless people. I'm delighted to say I'm also joined in the studio uh, by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton and someone who has been uh, sadly regular in, around the, uh, the, the table in the last few weeks, given what's been happening. Um, welcome, Yossi. Ruth just then was talking about the neighbours, Egypt, Turkey, Jordan. A couple of days ago, um, Obama, the former former US President Barack Obama talked about attitudes hardening among Palestinians for generations as a result of what was happening in, in, in Gaza and Israel. Could this hardening spread across the likes of Egypt, Turkey and Jordan and, and elsewhere? Good morning. Probably. Because in a way the Palestinians should become sort of a banner for other things. We saw like last week protesters in favour of Palestine, support of the Palestinians in Egypt talking about chanting freedom, bread, freedom and social justice and very close to the Tahrir Square. So under this banner, they come in different countries, also other issues because they're resentment towards uh, their, own, uh, their, own, their own regimes. But at the same time, when you have this death toll, the destruction, the pictures are there all over, you know, whether it's social media or the more traditional media, yeah, it's, it, it creates real anger. And that's also the discrepancies between the elites that, you know, went through process of normalization with Israel and acceptance of Israel and actually almost sidelining the Palestinian issue, while among people the sentiment of supporting the Palestinians is very strong. This is the issue, isn't it, Ruth, that although no one has um, directly tried to get anything done in a sort of permanent strategic fashion when it comes to the international community's reaction to, to, to Israel-Palestinian issue. Um, the fact is that now, our peop peop now people are having to take sides and, and make decisions. And we've seen in Turkey, the President Recep Tayyip Erdogan um, said yesterday that the Palestinian militant group Hamas is not a terrorist organisation, but a liberation group. And we are now seeing lines really strongly being drawn. 
That's true. I mean, I think also something that's worth talking about is we've seen, um, uh, as Jesse rightly pointed out, a division for a long time in terms of the sentiment on the street across the Arab world and the kind of sentiment that we've seen being expressed by leaders. And I think what's really interesting, and the protests in Egypt are a textbook example of this, is that you know these leaders are now suddenly feeling that they have to channel some of that energy, um, that they have to be seen to be receptive to what people on the street are saying in a way that hasn't really been demanded, certainly not of Sisi, for, who has crushed protests and dissent for the best part of a decade. Um, and so I think that there's a sense um, among leaders in the region that, first of all, they want to kind of contain public outrage, seeing what they're seeing and, um, you know, what people are seeing on their TV screens um, from the ground in Gaza. Um, and I think that there's also pressure on these leaders because there's real uh, fears about you know, regional containment about those ideas of spillover. And I think that if you're somebody like uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, you're extremely concerned about what could happen elsewhere in the region as well. Where are we to look for these hotspots of where this could overspill? I mean, the the immediate thoughts are Lebanon, aren't there? And where else? Well, I think for... I'll risk you go first. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I apologise. Um, no, I mean I think Lebanon is the the obvious answer, but I think the spillover between uh, the West Bank and um, and Jordan would be um, another concern, and that's certainly something that we've seen in um, statements from uh, the Jordanian leadership as well. Yossi. I, I think it's absolutely right. Jordan is the place to look at. The majority of people who live in in, in Jordan are Palestinian, even if they're citizens of Jordan. And every time there is a hike in in the tension between Israel and the Palestinians, the West Bank and Gaza, there is also tension within Jordan. And I think that's where we look. It can destabilize Jordan ver- very quickly, whether it's something happens in the only places in Jerusalem, in Gaza, other places on in the, in the West Bank. In, in I think... In Lebanon, is a bit different. The tension is with the Hezbollah, or the Palestinian issue is more minor there. Tell me a little bit more, um, Yossi, about what, what this now leads to, because as you and Ruth have both described, you have the spillover not necessarily just happening among the leaders of these neighbours and of these countries, but actually the, the, the reaction on the ground from citizens is arguably what could drive the agenda here. Yeah, and... Until what happened 7th October, Palestinian issue became secondary for most of the elite, for the leadership. And we saw also the process of normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia and before that, the Abraham Accord. And there is peace between uh, Jordan and Israel and Egypt is for decades. But again, the sentiment is, is so strong that it's also now going to influence the way governments are going to react to that. But in the frustration, probably, because we have spoken about so many times, it's the work done between rounds of hostility, because we know that the minute that this happens, we didn't expect this level of violence between these and, and, and the Palestinians, Hamas. But we know that always it's around, you know, it's around the corner because it's the unresolved issue, because there is no peace process, and situation on the ground is becoming even worse. And... Eventually, there will be ceasefire. The war will be over. But then, if they want to reduce this tension between the sentiment in the street and the way the government, sh- government should move forward, 
They should put all the effort to bring the Israel-Palestinian conflict to a, to a peaceful end. The, the trouble is, uh, Ruth, is that an awful lot of this, well, there had been so much progress until 7th, the 7th of October. We, we were talking about Israel and Saudi Arabia and, and, and you know, the, the, an official normalization of relations, despite the fact that the they have been cooperating quite closely for, for years and years because of a shared anxiety of Iran. There had been senses, hadn't there, that that things were going to be placed on a more even keel with, the, with, with Saudi Arabia at the middle of all this. And how much has that been shattered by what happened on the 7th of October? I mean, I think it's been totally upended, but I think we also have to talk about progress for who and where. If you're um, a Palestinian person in Gaza or the West Bank, or uh, I don't think that you would necessarily see those kinds of ties as a form of progress. I think that there were a lot of people who felt that their needs had been overlooked and that traditionally um, countries like Saudi Arabia had, had stood up for their interests and said, you know, we're not going to, we wouldn't consider normalization um, without there being some progress uh, towards um, Palestinian statehood in some form. And in, and I think what the 7th of October did was that it completely upended this idea that uh, Palestinians um, could be ignored in the kind of, in the regional, in terms of regional relations between um, Israel and other countries. Um, I mean, just to give one idea that I think is really important when we're talking about this, um, that, you know, this idea of what people on the street can see and how that affects their relationship with their leaders elsewhere in the region feels like something from a while ago, but we're seeing pressure on that now. But, you know, there was a report in Axios that uh, the uh, U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, um, has, has was talking about how he asked the Qatari prime minister um, a couple of weeks ago for them to turn down or to tone down, excuse me, the rhetoric that we saw in Al Jazeera Arabic around the war in Gaza. And this idea that if people can see what's going on on the ground, Al Jazeera being the main cable news channel that everybody in the Arab world is watching um, and elsewhere that can actually show you what's going on on the ground in Gaza um, right into your TV set that this is something that is you know understandably making people incredibly angry and I think that's leading to some of the changes and the shifts that we're seeing now. So we, we have there what Ruth just described was a, a sort of an, a requirement to tone down the reporting from what is going on in Gaza. I mean that Arguably, you know, goes against every single journalistic pr- principle on earth, doesn't it? It's again, it's you know, the messenger is is responsible for that, not the, the not the conditions on the ground. Yes, probably Al Jazeera went a bit too far sometimes with the way they reported, especially this, and then almost at the beginning supporting Hamas, which which was wrong. But I think actually they already toned down a little bit, but. When you talk about progress, for the average Palestinian, whatever it means, there is regression. The situation in in Gaza got worse. Yes, there are more work permits. Yes, more money came from Qatar. But if you look that 80% of of Gazan people, the people live in Gaza, most of them refugees, rely on humanitarian aid. And the humanitarian aid is actually... The, the, the budget is going down, for instance, with UNRWA. There is an ongoing low-intensity war in the West Bank, whether in Jenin or in Nablus and in East Jerusalem. So this is not for them 
All what happens out there is just regression. There is no progress whatsoever. Staying with you, Yossi, let's look ahead to... You have said that one day there will be a ceasefire in the region, which is, you know, yeah. is something that can be hoped for immensely. However, who is going to be responsible for, for bringing this about and for just calming things down? Because if we have... Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, we haven't even mentioned Iran, um, mm. and Saudi Arabia in the middle of all this. Do, do eyes look again at Saudi to try to bring, to try to bring some sort of stability about here? Uh, the fair thing is, no doubt, Iran pulls a lot of the string rights now and what happened, because if we see, for instance, missiles or missiles launched from, from, from the Yemen, it's obviously Iran is behind it. But I think it's Egypt. Egypt has the best connection together with Qatar, with Hamas. Part of the political leadership of, of uh, Hamas actually resides for many years in Qatar. They have the leverage. Egypt, also the proximity to, to Gaza and the connection between the intelligence service and, and, and Hamas can put pressure on Hamas. But it's also how the West deal with, with Israel and at what point say. The blank check we gave you two weeks ago, nearly three weeks ago, is, is running out. And we need to reach a ceasefire because otherwise it makes things worse. Yossi Mechelberg, thank you for joining me very much. Uh, thank you very much for joining me in the studio here. And thanks also to Ruth Michelson in Istanbul. You're listening to The Globalist live on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, the US House of Representatives has a new speaker, almost a month after it removed Kevin McCarthy. The conservative Louisiana lawmaker Mike Johnson won with 220 votes in the lower chamber of Congress. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack has filed this report. And we want our allies around the world to know that this body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. If this sounds like a moment of genuine elation, that's because it was. Republicans and even many Democrats cheered as Mike Johnson, congressman from Louisiana, was officially named Speaker of the House of Representatives. This ended a historic stalemate among Republicans that left the House literally unable to function for three weeks. We're going to fight. We're going to fight uh, vigorously over our core principles because they're at odds a lot of times now in this modern era. We have to sacrifice sometimes our preferences because that's what's necessary in a legislative body. But we will defend our core principles to the end. Soft-spoken and yet a hardline conservative who refused to certify Joe Biden's election and represented Donald Trump at his two impeachment trials. Speaker Johnson's election allows the House to get back to work. The first bill that I'm going to bring to this floor in just a little while will be in support of our dear friend Israel, and we're overdue in getting that done. And now the hard part really begins. Speaker Johnson's task is to unite a Republican conference that has been torn apart by unprecedented infighting. He'll have to unite a party that can't decide whether foreign aid for countries like Ukraine is necessary or superfluous for U.S. national security. And he'll have to negotiate a budget with Democrats before the U.S. government once again runs out of funding on November 15th. The job of the Speaker of the House is to serve the whole body, and I will. But I've made a commitment to my colleagues here that this Speaker's office is going to be known for decentralizing the power here. 
Johnson's promise heard here of a new way of governing sounds good in theory. In practice, he faces exactly the same fundamental dilemma as his predecessor Kevin McCarthy. Democrats control the White House and Senate, so any budget deal has to be a compromise that the hardline Republicans who supported Johnson do not want. In other words, any new approach to legislating will have to be coupled with some tough talk for his own supporters, telling them that compromise is essential in a divided government. Without that, the U.S. is either headed for one of the longest government shutdowns in its history, or Johnson will be headed for one of the shortest ever tenures as House Speaker. All the American people at one time had great pride in this institution, but right now, that's in jeopardy. And we have a challenge before us right now to rebuild and restore that trust. As I said, now the hard part begins. For Monocle in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack. And my thanks to Chris Chermack for that report. You're listening to Monocle Radio with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is 7.20 and you're with The Globalist. Now, the conflict between Israel and Gaza has taken the global centre stage for two weeks now, and if Moscow gets its way, will offer a welcome distraction from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So what effect will events 2,000 miles directly south from Kyiv have on the conflict? Well, President Vladimir Putin warned on Wednesday that Israel's conflict with Hamas could spread well beyond the Middle East. President Putin said bloodshed in the region had to stop and told other world leaders in phone calls that if it didn't, there was a risk of a much wider conflict. I'm joined down the line by the Russia analyst Stephen Diel and Maria Zolkina, a research fellow at LSE and the head of regional security and conflict studies at the Democratic Initiatives Foundation, which is a Ukrainian think tank. A very good morning to you both. Good morning. Um, Good morning. Maria, let's start with you. How much is uh, the the recent comments that um, the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that there was a direct comparison between what was happening in Ukraine and what was happening in Gaza. Yes, there was a comparison on the very first day, actually, from where everything started on 7th of October, when Hamas actually captured the hostages and arranged that uh, attacks on uh, uh, settlements close to the administrative border with Gaza. So at that time, there was a clear signal that hostilities and atrocities are not acceptable. Uh, but afterwards, uh, I would say that official rhetoric was a bit um, come down and changed a little bit. And uh, after a couple more speeches where Zelensky, uh, for instance, at the parliamentary assembly of NATO, at Rammstein, when, when he mentioned as well his solidarity with the idea that there shouldn't be any atrocities uh, uh, on the side of Hamas. After that, the official rhetoric was, I would say, a bit calmed down and adjusted. And I think that's because of the challenges Ukrainian diplomacy has in the Middle East and in the Global South. Uh, Maria, staying with you, I mean, just develop this idea as, as well about the, you know, the, the fears of, of maybe losing support or indeed interest. I'm not interested. I'm not. I'm not sure that interest exactly will be lost in the case of supporting Ukraine um, in the face of Russian aggression. And I think that there was such a fear at the very beginning. But as of now, we see that there is more like a tendency that support towards Israel on the one hand, because the same countries are supporting actually Israel in this fight. Uh, with Hamas at this stage of the war and the same countries are supporting Ukraine, basically, in most 
cases. So there will be a time that there is a tendency that this, uh, let's say, directions of support will be rather united uh, than uh, divided and distinguished. And it's easier for especially U.S. as of now is for Biden administration to unite them into one package of foreign aid to let's say, democracies. Well, so by by that, fears are decreased, let's say. Maria, how, how worried are you that, that, that the contrary could be put forward, which is the US cannot afford to help both Israel and Ukraine? And with an election coming up next year and Joe Biden for so long being such a strong supporter of, of Israel, that there is a fear that domestic politics could stop this from happening. Domestic politics in U.S. will definitely impact uh, foreign policy of U.S. next year. It's absolutely clear both for Ukraine and European Union countries, which are afraid that they will have to take some kind of a political or even financial leadership next year uh, over the support of Ukraine, for instance. But at the same time, uh, it's not just the case of Ukraine. It's the general challenge of uh, foreign policy of U.S. because we, we see what's going on in Congress. We see how much turbulence and instability is there. And the, 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 the only thing Ukraine in this case can do is just to uh, strengthen its parliamentary and governmental diplomacy in U.S., uh, which was a bit weakened, uh, also because of domestic politics in Ukraine. Less delegations are being sent to, to yes, as of now and elsewhere. And I think that should be fixed in Ukraine domestically and just to push a bit more and be more present and, and talk as actively as it was in 2022 to U.S. domestic politicians. Stephen, let me bring you in here. I mean, if you're Vladimir Putin sitting in Moscow, you must be dare I say, relishing both the distraction from uh, the Ukraine invasion, but also what Maria has just talked about, you know, the general challenge of foreign policy that not just the US, but many other governments share now. I think you're absolutely right. Um, this, uh, the, the conflict in Israel and Gaza absolutely suits Putin's needs because Putin's favourite game is goal. It's a board game that um, a lot of people say, oh, he plays chess, or he might play chess, but Go is a much more strategic game. And the board for Go can be anything from a tabletop to the whole globe, effectively. There was a classic Go move in 2015 by Putin when everyone was talking still about the seizure of Crimea and invasion of eastern Ukraine, and suddenly, without any warning, and, and pretty well catching even intelligence services on the hop, um, Russians started operating in Syria. And that distracted attention from uh, from what was going on in Ukraine. Um, and, and this, to me, seems like another classic goal move on, on Putin's part. I'm not saying Putin is entirely responsible uh, for what's going on in, and, and for, for the Hamas attacks um, uh, on Israel. Uh, but um, it, it really suits his needs. The day before the Hamas attacks, uh, Russia fired a missile at a, uh, a wake for a Ukrainian soldier in the village of Khroza, uh, killing now it's gone up to 58 people. Um, and then they still say that they abhor attacks on civilians. That was a, clearly an attack on a civilian target. And then the next day, Hamas attacks Israel. All the headlines are about what's going on in Israel. Um, that suits Putin's needs very nicely. Um, we also know that Russia and Moscow, the Kremlin, has for a long time had very close contacts uh, with Hamas. Uh, indeed, there have been two visits this year to Moscow by Hamas leaders, one in March, the other one, latest one in September. So very close. So I would find it very suspicious if, if Russia didn't have some input into this, at least knowledge of it. I'm not saying they planned it. 
but it certainly suits their needs. Stephen, stay with us to tell us a little bit more about what your reaction to President Putin's warning yesterday. I'll quote, Israel's conflict with Hamas could spread well beyond the Middle East. He said bloodshed in the region had to stop and he's been ringing other world leaders to say that there's a much uh, wider risk of conflagration. Uh, what does he mean by this? And, and if we are playing this strategic game, what is his intention behind those comments? Well, I would say he's not only uh, ringing leaders by telephone, but he's wringing his hands uh, in pretend uh, worry, because in fact, the more uh, disorder there is in the world today, the more that suits Russia. And they're, they're quite plain about that. If you if you read their statements, um, they, they say that you know they, they want to destroy the American based world order. Um, and anything short of a nuclear conflict, actually, Russia will use it for its own needs. Um, that is the one thing that would worry Putin if nuclear weapons were being used. Um, but any the, the, the idea of there being trouble in Israel, the idea of the Middle East uh, having other problems too, um, we've seen what um, what Russia has done in, in Africa, with particularly with the Wagner Group, but not only, um, causing trouble in, in uh, various African states. Um, this really suits the, the Russian, I was going to say rule book, but it's, it's, it's a lack of rules. That's the point. Um, Russia really wants to cause as much problem as possible. That's one of the, one of the um, uh, other aims of the Ukrainian war is to, to stir up trouble in Europe, to set European allies against each other. We saw that particularly at the start when it took a while for Germany to come on board uh, because Russia's had close ties with Germany. So anything that causes chaos and disorder actually suits Russia, anything short of nuclear war. Stephen Diel and Maria Zalkina, thank you both for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson, still to come. We'll find out why Netflix shares are booming and the writing is on the wall for daytime television. Stay with us. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. here in London. Let's have a look at today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio, Simon Brook, journalist, communications consultant, regular. Good morning, Simon. Looking neat as a pin, as ever. Why, thank you, too. I love the fact that you put on a a jacket, ladies and gentlemen, to come into the studio. Especially for Monocle, absolutely. So happy about Mm -hmm. that. Um, Okay, well, uh, in between getting uh, very, very smart, what else have you been doing? You've been looking at the papers for us, and what have you spotted? Yeah, that's right. The FT has an interesting story about Qatar, um, and uh, the paper points out that uh, recent visitors to the uh, Gulf state have included the <clears throat> US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Iran's top diplomat Hossein Amrib Dolian. And it's not often that you get... Um, 
two such uh, two uh, secretaries of state, two foreign affairs ministers visiting one country, given the terrible state of relations between the US and Iran. But that really just underlines the unique position that Qatar has. Um, the paper reminds us that Qatar's poured m- hundreds of millions of dollars of aid into Gaza, and it's one of the few states, as I say, that has uh, good relations both with the US and Iran. But more importantly, of course, it's hosted Hamas's political office since 2012, and it's as a result of that, the paper reports, that there's now um, real sort of scrutiny of Qatar's uh, role. Um, Obviously, it's tremendously useful as a conduit and, uh, as I say, given the visits that the FT is reminding us have taken place, that's particularly important. But um, people are also questioning, given the atrocities that Hamas has committed, whether this is the right thing for it to do. Indeed, it's it's a country which, I mean, this article in the Financial Times is saying that Qatar is doing this for not entirely as as an altruistic gesture. It means that it can sort of have its own it can resolve its own security issues and keep itself safe. But I remember that that Qatar made the headlines a decade ago when it started to host the Taliban for 2013. And then when there were discussions between um, the the Taliban just in the immediate, um, just just before the the Americans pulled out, there was this feeling that Qatar was the place where you went to discuss the the, the stuff that you couldn't discuss. And it is, the, the paper also points up some remarkable things that many people might not be aware of, that it secured the release of Ukrainian children who were snatched by Russia in the war, and it's also acted as a mediator between the Biden administration and Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela. So, yeah, exactly. It's it's not just issues to do with the Middle East that it's playing this unique role. Um, it, it does seem to be reaching much further. Um, and I think it's interesting the way it's positioning itself um, as a sort of unique uh, player in some of the world's most difficult conflicts. But on the other hand, the, the FT does quote uh, a professor of government at Georgetown University, Qatar, which I think is quite interesting that Georgetown has a branch in Qatar, uh, Meren Kamrava, who says that the, 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 the state is earning brownie points from the US, but their image is getting bruised. So I think it's always difficult if you are going to get involved in really controversial uh, issues. Um, it, you can't do it without suffering any sort of collaboration lateral damage to your image, if you like. Thank you for that. Let's move to a story in the New York Times. Um, Trump's lawyers, well, we're now on the third Donald Trump allied lawyer to plead guilty to state criminal charges related to his effort to, oh, goodness me, related to his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Briefly put, Donald Trump's lawyers are um, finding themselves in as much legal trouble as they could imagine. Yeah, we have to be careful here, of course. But yeah, exactly. Columnist, uh, New York Times columnist David French reminds us that on Tuesday morning, Jenna, uh, Jenna Ellis became the third Donald Trump allied lawyer to plead, plead guilty in Fulton County, Georgia, and she pleaded guilty to state criminal charges related to uh, the former president's efforts to overturn the result of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Um, Joining her are Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheeseborough. And uh, uh, David French, the columnist, uh, sort of suggests that they represent an advance for both the state election prosecution, um, you know, the find me the 11,000 votes uh, conversation in Georgia, but also for federal election prosecutions in Washington. But interestingly, um, 
uh, also the information that these lawyers disclose uh, in their cases could be highly relevant to Jack Smith, who is the, of course, the special counsel investigating Trump. Um, David French points out it's too early to, to tell whether the prosecution has made real uh, progress on Trump itself, on Trump himself. But what's interesting here is, of course, the, the intent question that was being massive in the uh, discussions about Trump's uh, guilt or not. You know, did he, getting into his mind, did he really intend to do what he uh, said he was going to do? And there's a question about whether his team could sort of rely on the defence, if you like, that we were just doing what our lawyers told us to do it, it and dump a, on them. It is that issue, isn't it? I mean, they're now pleading pleading guilty, but it is always the issue in, in criminal cases as well of intent, not just simply committing the crime, but but having the, 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 the psychological intention to do it. And now we have uh, three lawyers who are pleading guilty. Uh, we will follow this uh, closely, as I'm you sure. say, here on Monocle Radio. Um, right, let's uh, hop over to the South China Morning Post. What's, what have you picked up? Yeah, an exclusive story in the paper that China, it reminds us that China's been trying to gain entry to the the special Asia-Pacific trade pact, the uh, Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. And now, according to Australian sources, uh, the Australian government will not oppose China joining the CPTPP. Um, so both countries apparently have made concessions on trade and investment. Um, but the source within the uh, at Canberra says relations will never return to the status quo. And I think this is interesting in a kind of broader perspective as well, because obviously relations between China and Australia have not been good, but this suggests that they really are warming up. Indeed, Prime Minister Antonio Albanese is on his way to Beijing next week. It's a big move, isn't it, for, for China not opposing, uh, sorry, for Australia not opposing China during the CPTPP. Um, it would fundamentally change that group, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it if it had China in it? Well, it is. It, it, it does have some big players. It has Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Singapore, amongst others. Um, and I think what's interesting, of course, is if you put this in the context of the more difficult relations that China is experiencing with the US and the EU and, and other countries around the world. Um, uh, it does seem that they are at least have one sort of ally anyway. And, of course, if they do go ahead and join this, uh, uh, the um, CPTPP, it does give them an opportunity to uh, form close relations with some key players as uh, well. Right. Finally, let's have a major gear change here and pick out a story that you wanted to draw our attention to, The Guardian. <laughs> um, apparently, if you're uh, Generation Z, Z, depending on where you're listening, uh, you want to see more friendship and platonic relationships on screen and less sex. I think this is really sweet, actually. I have mm. to say, uh, uh, you know, having Gen Z nephew and nieces, um, they don't drink as much as uh, the older generation, should we say. Yeah, and apparently they're not quite as interested in sex as well, at least on the screen anyway, I should say. And I think this is really touching because I'm always sort of, I don't know, uh, there's so much sort of sexualization, I suppose, if you look in fashion, advertising, so many things. And I think this is going to be, and, and obviously there's an assumption that people do want to uh, see uh, young bodies getting it on on the screen, but apparently they don't, according to, uh, or certainly this younger um, age group. So um, nearly 50%, nearly half of them said sex was not needed for the plot in most TV shows and movies, while just 44% said felt that romance was overused in the media. Uh, nearly 39% want to see more aromantic or asexual characters on screen. So 
What does that tell us, I suppose? I, I mean, scriptwriters, directors, you've got a challenge there, haven't you? I've no idea, because when you read an awful lot about what young people are watching, there's, there's an almost amount of discussion, fearful discussion, about porn. That Actually, that, that that's where young people are getting uh, very, very uh, inaccurate descriptions about what happens. But, but the fact is that what has come out post-COVID is that people have a better sense of community and um, the fact that the media can be used here, as is, as is quoted in this in this paper, as a third place where you can feel a sense of belonging. Yeah, and perhaps it is concerns about um, Me Too, hashtag Me Too and other things and, and uh, you know, people giving consent. But yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I can sort of understand the, the sex on the screen, which might get a bit tedious after a while, but um, really interesting quotes uh, from one respondent, a 17-year-old black boy from Georgia. I don't like that every boy and girl friendship has to be romantic at some point. Sometimes people can just be friends, which is, uh, you know, interesting um, that uh, you can take that sort of different perspective. But as I say, it does present, given that some of the greatest love stories, Romeo and Juliet or whatever, because some of the greatest stories, sorry, our love stories, I suppose, this is going to be a sort of refocus, a redirection uh, for, for script writers uh, looking to explore friendship, which is a lovely idea. How lovely. Simon Brooke, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. The time here in London is 7.40am. A quick look now at what else we're keeping an eye on today. At least 16 people have been killed in a shooting in the US city of Lewiston in Maine. There are unconfirmed reports that dozens more are injured. Police say the suspected gunman is an Army Reserve firearms instructor with diagnosed mental health issues and he is still at large. The US House of Representatives has a new speaker almost a month after it removed Kevin McCarthy. The Conservative Louisiana lawmaker Mike Johnson won with 220 votes in the lower chamber of Congress. Russia says it successfully tested its ability to deliver a massive nuclear strike by land, sea and air. The Kremlin statement coincides with Moscow de-ratifying a landmark nuclear test ban treaty. And Armenia's Prime Minister has said he sees no advantage in continuing to host Russian military bases on its territory after Azerbaijan retook the contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan seized Nagorno-Karabakh in a lightning military operation last month. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. in Beijing, 8.41am if you're listening in Zurich. Now we turn now to China's dream to compete with and overtake the space programmes of the likes of the US, Russia and India. China has sent its youngest crew yet to its man Tiangong space station. And to tell us more, I'm joined now by Dr Jill Stewart, a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and an expert in the politics of space exploration. A very good morning. Welcome back, Jill. Good morning. So just tell us, who's going to Tiangong and why is it so important that they're so young? So they're sending up another three Taikonauts to replace the three that are on there now. So it's a permanently inhabited space station like um, the International Space Station is. There's always people on there. There's a lot being said about the age of the people that are going up because apparently two of the Taikonauts that are going up are in their early 30s. And then the third one is somebody who's returning. Um, I think it's interesting that a lot is being said about the age of these people. A lot of astronauts are traditionally younger particularly when you have a program such as China, where um, most of the the people who go into the astronaut corps are post-military or military people. So 
personally, I didn't find it that surprising that they're so young, but it is something that the uh, China itself seems to be promoting as being something that they want to have an emphasis on, that they're sending up these young people who are new and representing the new generation going on to their space station. And this is obviously setting the tone for saying we have generations of talent to, to offer. Um, so you better watch out US, Russia and India. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned India. A lot of people talk about how this is a new space race between the US and China, but people overlook how this is, I think, a lot about India, actually, the the race between China and India as developing countries who are entering into the arena of being um, space capable countries, really kind of wanting to jockey for position as being, quote unquote, space powers. And yeah, so China is is only the third country in the world that has had crude space capabilities, and they are, um, you know, using that for propaganda purposes now, which is no surprise. Countries traditionally use space activity for propaganda reasons, and that's what we're seeing now with China, in my opinion. Indeed, and and many are linking this with the the fact that you know India has successfully uh, sent a probe to the moon in the last in the last few months. Um, China's mission to send a manned mission to the moon is is high up on the agenda isn't it? Absolutely. So they want to send a mission up by the end of 2030. The United States has said that they want to have boots on the moon again by 2025. And India has said that they want to enter the crude um, space activity. So there is renewed interest in this space activity. There is a scientific background for this. And I think we can all appreciate the sort of excitement around that. But there's always a geopolitical background to it as well, where countries are demonstrating their power and prestige, their economic capabilities, their technological ca- capabilities by competing with space activity. Indeed. I mean, they've recruited Pakistan and Belarus, haven't they, for the International Lunar Research Station? I mean, what's the political significance of that? It's interesting because the International Space Station was a very collaborative organization for many years, and it was uh, the United States in particular that rejected China from participating in the International Space Station. So China said, fine, we will create our own space station. So they are sort of forming their own um, system of alliances and and partners that are willing to work with them on their space station in the same way that other countries have done so for their space stations, for example, the International Space Station. Dr. Jill Stewart from the London School of Economics, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist on Monocle Radio. We travel now to the chilly Arctic, a region that often conjures up images of polar bears and endless wilderness. But the Arctic is home to four million people, many of whom are in serious need of investment for critical infrastructure. Well, this is one of the key themes discussed at the Arctic Circle Assembly, which took place in Reykjavik over the weekend. Monocle's Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk team travelled to the Icelandic capital to meet some of those who were there, including Jessica Shadian, the president and CEO of Arctic 360, a think tank dedicated to the region. Andrew began by asking Jessica about some of the common misconceptions about the Arctic. Well, one of the biggest ones is this just this notion that somehow we should put the Arctic in a snow globe. There's still a lot of perceptions that northerners themselves don't want development, and that's a misconception. So when we, you know, when it comes then to investment, financial institutions, institutional investors especially, and trying to drive some private sector money, like to build 
to create public-private partnerships for, let's say, massive infrastructure projects, but even in the, uh, the mining space, it becomes difficult because people think it's a region that needs to just be protected. Mm-hmm. And so they should boycott it rather than invest in it. And also that the northerners themselves are against development. And so it creates a creates a difficult terrain to attract business and to grow business. And and I think what also is maybe lost on a lot of international audiences is that, like in the Canadian North, we have five land claims agreements. So we, when people talk about, well, especially when it, in terms of mining, critical mineral mining is a very different space than uh, mining of, of the past, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not the dinosaur it used to be. And so now everything is about innovation and creating all these crazy ways to leave zero footprint, which is real. But also there's so many people who say, well, but what about the people and how, because in the past, miners would come in or other industries would come in and, you know, just take the resources and leave and, mm-hmm. and not you know, benefit the communities and even hurt the communities themselves, which is not the case. Now, a lot of the Northern communities want and are very interested in being part of the potential critical mineral sector that Canada has, and especially in its north. And um, the discussion now in Canada is about equity ownership. And so there's there's no like, oh, we have to worry about like consultation or anything like that. It's just it's moved far beyond that. Now they're it's the way it is in terms of in can- all through Canada with Indigenous uh, communities when it's, you know, they've got a lot of the resources and, and it's about everyone making it a win-win situation. I mean, th- that would obviously be the, the, the silver bullet if, if you can do that thing of, of combining uh, economic development with, uh, I guess, preservation of the environment and figuring out a way that they, you don't have to pick one or the other. But is that... Is that being overly optimistic? It, no, it is possible? No, it's it's called sustainable development, mm-hmm. right? We need to do mining, let's say, okay? Mm-hmm. And everyone has to weigh the consequences of all of our actions. And I don't think the Arctic is disconnected from us all trying to navigate our consequences of what we do to the planet, but we also need to have energy, you know, and to be able to heat our homes and these kind of things. And so I think if we're trying to think about it, we need to think about it more from a global perspective, and maybe we actually do need to do be thinking about how to reduce emissions, but in other areas, and at that same time, recognize that we can't also though deprive Northerners of access to affordable and clean energy, telecommunications, and every other aspect, you know, infrastructure, and all of these things take massive investments, and you can't have infrastructure or telecommunications without energy. And the fact that a lot of communities are reliant on very highly expensive and polluting diesel mm. That's not sustainable. And like anywhere else in the world, we can't just switch the light off and move to solar in one day. So while maybe solar or wind, these are great little supplements, this is not the kind of energy that's required for the North to be able to have the prosperous, sustainable communities of their own. How much of a threat to that uh, ideal of sustainability is the possibility that, for obvious reasons, it is decided that certainly in the short term, the Arctic needs to be a lot better defended? I think in terms, well, I think Northerners themselves also recognize, they understand global politics, they follow global politics, and we have a massive Arctic Ocean coast line. We also have uh, NORAD. So the dew line, for instance, you know, the dew line goes from, you know, through Alaska and over Canada. So it's an Inuit corporation, actually, that 
receive the, the main contract to do the due line upgrades. And so in the past, the due line and a lot of the military installments did a lot of damage to northern communities and to the environment and to the land. And I think some of the Iqaluit water issue came from pre-existing uh, military things in the ground. But that again has changed. And so now we're looking at, you know, modernizing NORAD and building up uh, the dew line. And so you have like an Inuit corporation who now has a contract for that. And so they employ, uh, you know, Inuit, they employ their own communities. This is, you know, a massive um, economic opportunity for them. They, um, yeah, they're now part of the fabric. Just one final question, and it is, it is quite a niche one related to my own nerdish interest in, in transportation. You co-wrote a piece a while back for the McDonald laurie Institute advocating airships in the north. Um, how would that work in practice? So one of the things we've been really advocating, um, and we could see it already taking place regularly with our Nordic neighbors, is this idea that you can innovate out of the Arctic, mm-hmm. and we should be innovating out of the Arctic, and because we're still left with these mentalities that we do innovations, and then, you know, 65 years later, you bring up the someone's old computer to the north and <laughs> donate it, and these kind of things, and, um, but where the Arctic has so much potential is you're kind of being able to build, at least in the Canadian north, you know, thinking about 21st century, second half of the 21st century infrastructure and how goods and people get from A to B, these are going to change over time. And we're already seeing, you know, everything moving towards smart, you know, types of infrastructure and ports and logistics. And so logistics is undergoing change. And airships is has a lot of potential in the north for this. There's been a community consultation that's been done uh, in Canada, partly led by um, our director for the north, our northern branch, Madeline Redfern, and going around and talking to communities to basically educate them a bit about the potential for airships, but then also the idea and the potential if they would, uh, for having an airport. And so what does it mean to have an airport and then what kind of revenues can that bring in, but what kind of like, you know, and just all the pieces around having an airport in your, in your region. I think it has huge potential. I don't think it's pie in the sky dreams anymore. I think this is, we're getting to a point where it's just when. That was Jessica Shadian, President and CEO of Arctic 360, talking to Andrew Muller at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. a.m. here in London. It's time for a roundup of the latest stories in the world of television with the critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. I hope all is well in Tellyland. Um, Yeah, mostly. I mean, it is a busy time of year as well. So we would normally be be having quite a lot of kind of US shows. Of course, they haven't really been coming as much because of the Hollywood strikes. But the British TV has actually not been doing that badly and of course we've got the crown coming up and a whole host of reality tv shows it's, it's never ending i absolutely cannot wait uh, maybe we'll skip the reality tv shows but let's I mean, you, men- <laughs> you mentioned the crown uh, a new a new series 
Yeah, a new series, of course, the final series. There's been a lot of interest in this because this is like the jewel in uh, Netflix's crown. It started in the mid-2010s, of course, looking back at the royal family one decade at a time. I think it's fair to say, though, that whilst the first few series has been kind of very highly regarded, I think mostly because of the acting performances by the likes of Claire Foy and Matt Smith, as well as the amount of money uh, that's been spent on the screen. I mean, it really is a show that I think harks back to the peak of peak TV. Um, it feels it's been sort of getting a bit more of a kickback maybe with later seasons. I guess it is because it is now heading to events within you and I's sort of more, more recent memory, events that may maybe play out differently um, with our own um, sort of recollection versus what the Crown is actually depicting. I think there's also been sort of criticism about maybe it's not necessarily being that pleasant for the royal family if there's having kind of very personal situations play out on screen for millions to, to see. I think there's a really interesting... Uh, piece uh, with uh, Variety uh, that was out yesterday with its creator Peter Morgan and he says that a reason why the show might be having sort of quite a lot of heat is not really because of the storylines he says that you know a lot of um, uh, shows have fictional depictions of what's happening but he says that maybe it's the sort of the closeness of the royal family to everybody whether you like them or loathe them uh, it's closeness to the British sort of um, uh, sort of hearts and minds has meant that that it, it has had been sort of uh, this sort of wave of criticism. There's an interesting uh, line in that very in that excellent article in Variety, and I recommend everybody to go and read it. The the, the fact that on the face of it, having um, a biopic about um, a lady in her eighties or now a dearly departed lady in her eighties. Um, going on for 60 hours in which case it, during which you change the casting of the main characters several times is not something that Netflix would ordinarily find attractive no but I think it's fair to say that it worked out for them I think it's allowed them to show that they can have the sort of the grandness and the scale of the likes of HBO I mean I think until this series debuted back then there had been some um, uh, 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 upmarket TV shows, House of Cards, of course, Oranges for New Black. But I think this was the first time that they were able to say, look, so we want to be making the likes of a show that you would maybe see on the BBC. I mean, I doubt the BBC would ever be able to get away with making a show like The Crown, but, 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 but able to get away with the breadth and the scale of it. And I think also creating shows that are global events in the terms of drama. I think it does raise questions about Netflix going forward. I think what's rather interesting is that um, they've sort of clamped down on password sharing. That's the idea of um, you giving your login to another household. Now it's only really possible that one household can log in to Netflix at a time. And in the interim, it's done quite well for them. They've actually grown memberships, I guess, because a lot of people have felt you know, fine, I'm not going to keep asking my friend for their login now that I can't log in myself. I'll just pay the five quid and so be it. But I guess a key question is you know, whether they will be able to invest in the scale of drama at a time and it's still, of course, the acting strikes in the US um, and also have a show that is distinctive now that the TV ecosystem has changed considerably since The Crown first came out with its first series. There's so much more competition now. I think arguably uh, uh, trends have changed quite a bit in terms of what viewers want. And I think now um, the likes of Netflix will be much more wanting to have a financial um, uh, profit um, in the short term rather than be happy to go into the red spending 
arguably you know more than a hundred million per series in the hope that maybe the the money and the success will come down later you you mentioned the fact that they've they've cracked down on password sharing this has actually helped them to boost their share prices hasn't it because it's realized that more people as you say have had to sign up yeah i mean i, I think it's certainly also um uh, the case that they're able to sort of be the market um, uh, that they're able to strike out first with sort of doing this in terms of sort of clamping down on on, on password sharing i think the likes of now Disney and other rivals are starting to realise, heck, if Netflix can get away with it, uh, maybe we can too. And I think it's allowed them to sort of um, have a sense that actually maybe perhaps there's more people who will be signing up to Netflix than previously anticipated. Netflix, only about a year and a half ago, had decided to lose subscribers after 10 years of consecutive growth. So I think they're starting to realise, heck, we can have a bit more um, uh, growth there. I think what, what's and the other things interesting is that they're also raising prices, not just in the UK, but in the US too, at a time when they're also clamping down on passwords. And I think that that's led to a bit of kickback. People saying, well, hang on, there's, there's less shows coming down in the pipeline. Even you've admitted this, and yet you're raising prices. But I think Netflix's policy probably is well, let's try to you know to make some hay whilst the sun's shining in the hope that, that if we then have another sort of uh, a bad uh, a quarter, maybe in a year's time, once this sort of immediate growth and password clamping down has stopped, then we'll still have enough money to maybe invest in more programs and maybe keep the growth going. So, so I think that's the 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 div of the challenge for them in in the meantime is to stop people. Uh, pushing away but i mean yet again coming down to consumers if you look at them having to subscribe to the likes of amazon prime video apple tv plus they're all raising their prices apple tv plus just raised their price yesterday uh, disney plus have raised their prices in the uk too so of course it's getting considerably more expensive but the main key thing is it doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting more content or much more content no indeed and you mentioned a moment ago the hollywood writers the hollywood strikes how much has that played into the problem I, th- I think it has. Uh, the longer it goes on, the the more sort of uh, the the bigger the consequence it ends up being. I sort of think it's quite similar actually to the shutdowns that we had. Um, following the COVID pandemic, because of course, with many places around the world, TV production had to go and um, stop at least for sort of six months or so. Uh, viewers didn't notice it for the first six months because all the regular shows were, were coming through. This was happening at a time when the the growth, the global growth of TV, was was well and truly underway. So, but of course, if you remember, if you can, to like summer 2021, um, maybe autumn 2021, you're really starting to notice, and there were a lot more in documentaries a lot more in kind of reality tv show formats of all the people sort of maybe distance apart from each other or having to go through bubbles and i think that autumn was quite hard for consumers just in terms of the amount of range it, it, it dipped quite significantly at the time there was so much shows to catch up on i think viewers kind of noticed it so it didn't really notice it i think this time they certainly will That's of course good. other countries like the uk don't experience that Scott, apologies for interrupting you, but I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Scott Bryan. The time here in London is 7.54. Now, the oldest planned square in Paris is a new port of call for art lovers. Global gallery brand Mendes Wood DM recently took over an 18th century building in the Marais, adding to locations in New York, Brussels and Sao Paulo. Well, at last week's Paris Plus Fair, Monocle's Robert Band caught up with Mendes Wood partner Carolyn Drake Candiotti and the Paris branch director Nicola Nahab to find out more about the new venture. Rob began by asking Carolyn why Mendeswood decided to open in Paris now. Paris has always been interesting to us. 
Pedro Mendes and Matthew Wood studied here many, many years ago. I did as well in 2006. Uh, so we've always been big fans of Paris and felt like it was a place where we wanted to expand to at some point. Uh, we weren't in a rush. We were looking for the ideal space and the ideal space presented itself last year. It seems like at the same time it's a great moment because we feel like Paris is, is opening up. There's so many international players coming here and it's, it really feels like a, a new open chapter in the future of the French capital. Yeah, it does feel like an exciting time. And maybe you can tell us as a Frenchman, I assume, but I don't know whether you're a Parisian, what, what it feels like or whether there feels like there's a different mood in Paris and that, you know, being the director of this wonderful new space here in the city, that you're kind of grabbing that momentum by the scruff of the neck. Absolutely. I think that I've been working in this field in Paris since 20 years now, and it's more international than ever. Uh, as you know, a lot of galleries arrived here, international galleries, so that kind of that perception of the city has shifted. I think that Brexit also had a little bit to do with it, but it's also driven by the institutions. I mean, of course, Pompidou has always been here, but the foundations have been an enormous, enormous plus or addition to the city. When you see the shows that the Pinot Collection or the Louis Vuitton Foundation put on, these are international shows that people travel to as well as these uh, mega galleries that arrived here. So there's a there's kind of a lens. There's a bit of an ecosystem then that you're tapping into. Yeah, I mean, the people are scrutinizing and analyzing Paris, yes, right now, and looking at it and excited also to come. Also, Paris is beyond its art world. People love to come here for dinner, for, uh, you know, uh, just shopping, walking around, its culture. And so uh, it's kind of a combination of both uh, elements, yeah. And interesting, just in terms of the, the overall strategy for the gallery, you started off in Sao Paulo, then you went to Brussels, then New York, now you're in Paris. There is something that is, it's not a pinball machine, but there's obviously a clever design behind it. But, but yeah, it, it's, it's an unusual trajectory. It's not New York, London, Paris, etc. Um, so tell us a little bit about maybe the overview of that. I think that came also from our personal stories and our personal connections and the way that we've grown has been very organic and um, I would say sincere to where we feel like we can add value uh, and where essentially we would like to be. And so that's why not only location but the spaces that we've chosen have been really important in that. It wasn't a question of we need to go there and we need to find something now. It's, you know, we have a tendency of wanting to move in a certain direction and if a space manifests itself to us we were interested in going down that path so Brussels for us made sense I mean, personally I was living in Amsterdam at the time it was kind of close for me I spoke the languages so that was kind of re one of the reasons that we wanted to go to Brussels I mean there were several reasons but uh, there was a so it's more personal than some grand strategy that was that was in it for Mendes Wood. And then New York, you know, Matthew Wood is American, and there was that element. And then expanding from Brussels to Paris also felt like a very organic next step. And just finally, can I get you to, you're the director of this lovely new space in Paris. Can, I, can you just give me a little bit of an idea of the neighborhood it's in and who your, kind of, who your neighbors are and how, how that fits into the community, if, if that's one of the, the ideas of the gallery. Indeed. I think we're completely embedded in the Marais community, which is quite large now. So it starts at Pompidou and ends with the Boulevard Montmarché. But our closest neighbors, of course, we're on Place des Vosges, which is a very well-known historical site, but we have very famous galleries just next door, like uh, Massimo de Carlo, Alminrej, Perrotin. So we're more in that neighborhood there, yeah. But we are also in a historical building. I think that 
from a foreign perspective, if you come to Paris, you want, you know, you want Paris. You want the most typical, most beautiful site, and that's what it is. And that was Nicola Nahab and Carolyn Drake Candiotti from Mendes Wood DM there, in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound in Paris. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Isabella Jewell and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>